Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. My guest today is Sarah David, Managing Director of Thrive Consulting Collaborative. She has a side hustle, Love Work More, with friend Richard Ferguson. You can find her on Twitter at S-A-Z-D-A-V-Y. This is our second podcast together. In our first, which is episode seven of this series, you can hear her backstory, some of her work-related achievements and her approach to learning and to self-care. We've subtitled this second podcast somewhat ambitiously as the leader, as philosopher, learner and listener. And I visage, it might be more of a conversation than an interview. We'll see. So, Sarah, in our first podcast together, you were talking about how our politicians were no longer philosophers. Why do you think it matters? Oh, thanks, uh, Chris. It's good to be here today. I think it matters because uh, we live in this bucker world volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and things are grey, things aren't black and white. So I think a uh, politician as philosopher is about this idea that uh, in a grey world we, we can go back and forth, we can accept sometimes maybe the first answer is not, not the right answer, and politics matters way more than we might like to think it does, because laws affect pretty much everything that, that we do in some in some aspect and uh, yeah I, I just wish there was more space for politicians to be able to be more philosophical and, and to create more space for thinking. For the record I'm completely with you on this one and I think there are parallels in business life. Um, the people at the top who have thought about what leadership means to them and therefore as a prerequisite to that what life means to them a few and far between in my experience and what and when I say that, I don't mean they have to be ad adherents of an organised religion, but they need to have thought about what life means to them. Um, my favourite quote is from Emmy van Derzen, who's an existential psychotherapist, and she says, Passive living comes easily. One can always fall back on it. Active living requires much practice and study, as does any art. Unless you know what you value, what gives you life, how can you live actively? You're a big fan of the Stoics, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. We, we've talked about this, haven't we? Because, uh, I mean, I, what what I really appreciate about the Stoics, I guess in a world in which Instagram and social media can make it feel like a place in which life should be perfect or should be easy, the sto that Stoic thinking that actually life is a struggle, life is hard, uh, life's rarely going to go uh, according to a plan, I think that's just, I found that's really helped me a lot uh, to, to manage my expectations. And I guess when the highs happen to, to enjoy them, but not be too attached to them. And when the lows happen, know that they too will pass. Yeah, I get that. I'm just a little concerned though that stoicism can become a kind of resignation. An existentialist, for example, would encourage you to engage with your difficulties. What do you think? I think it's I think stoicism and optimism can still sit comfortably together. I think it's more about that things will generally be okay and that okay is good enough. It's it's interesting one because I often talk to coaching clients about this idea that too often we think of ourselves as peak us instead of average us. By definition we're going to be average us most of the time. That's what average means and that's okay. That is okay. So I, I 
I, I guess the thing is, I, I can notice with one of our ways of dealing with things when things aren't okay, perhaps is to sometimes gloss over the fact that things aren't okay or try and say, look, they'll be better in the future. And the experience is that when one challenge goes away, another one will replace it. And so if we can be more comfortable in that mess, in that in those difficult times and help our teams and the people around us feel as okay as we can during that, then we're going to be more resilient. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. So it's it's leaning into the struggle and almost taking pleasure in the struggle. If, if you can. If you yeah, can. If you, if you can, yeah, yeah. I would say that, that it will all be better when the leader has a clear purpose and values and can articulate to his team what the current tough time is all for. If they knew that, then the team might be more content with it rather than waiting for it all to end. And without clear purpose, the organisation's been vulnerable to to being entirely a product of the system within which it operates. It reacts rather than responds to its stakeholders, their targets, budgets, etc., and becomes quite soulless. You know, there's the danger that the leader can just pass down the anxiety mm. of that mm. to the organisation. As an example of a leader who knows where she's going, I would cite Tracy Allen, who appears in episode 12, she asks the nearly ready chief execs that she mentors the question, what's your leadership for? And her own answer is for social justice. She sees the role of a trust board as insulating middle management and frontline staff from central directives, targets and budgetary imperatives so they can engage more meaningfully with their patient communities. Her clarity creates a headroom in which her staff can be proactive and creative in serving their communities. Is that your take on it? Yeah, I, I think I've come to it in a slightly different route. So mm-hmm. I think if I think for me, what values and purpose can do is just help with prioritization. So we live in a world in which everything is coming at us all the time. Uh, we've got too much choice, fortunately. <laughs> uh, we've got too many emails. We've got too many options, too many opportunities, too many people shouting and the only way I'm finding that leaders and just people day to day can cut through that is to be really clear about purpose and values to then make a call on what really matters because that decision fatigue that we have, that choice fatigue we have is, isn't going away. But I also get why people may not have that clarity about values and purpose because I think it is a, it's scary to be categoric And I think also as humans, coming back to that choice thing, we can sometimes think that by being clear on what we are, we're becoming more intentional and aware about what we're not and what we're not. Yeah, yeah. That that scariness is what Jean-Paul Sartre would describe as existential angst, I think. That's right, isn't it? It's, it's that sense that we're giving up things, but we're not actually giving up anything. We're just being clear about, about what really matters. And I think the, the irony is that the freedom that being clear about who you are and what you want, the freedom that gives you is actually immense. It's not a prison. It's the reverse because that clarity then opens up a whole world of, well, that's why I'm not doing that. That's not why I'm not watching that. That's why I've not replied to that email or, or whatever it is. Yeah, the uh, the book I've been reading uh, recently on existentialism is subtitled How to Get Real, Get a Grip and Take Responsibility. So in my book, I talk about a spiritual journey as part of one's personal development planning. I use the word word spiritual 
as relating to the soul or spirit to meaning. It's a form of stretch project, if you like. What do you think? Mm, yeah, I really like this idea. And um, I use the word soul for sure in the broader, not the Catholic sense. Uh, you know, do you feel it in your soul? Do you feel it in your in your very being? And where are you on your own journey to find meaning? Yeah, I think it is a great question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as as, as well. It, it's, it is an interesting one. As I talked in the previous podcast, church and religion and prayer in the traditional sense was a huge part of my life uh, before I was widowed. And at that point, I was living in the States again. And I do find... So I should say, I don't find England to be a, a non-spiritual country. My experience of England is it can be a less spiritual place than the, the, the parts of the US that I've lived in, in Colorado, Utah, and New York, and New Jersey. But certainly the uh, Buddhism and Stoics have been reference points for me in that journey of meaning. And then there's, there's sort of contemporary authors that I really enjoy in, in that space, Alan de Botton, Kristen Tippett, David White... Okay, I'll I'll try to answer that myself then. Great. Um, you've put the you've put the challenge down. Where am I right now? I guess I'm. If I if I wanted to put myself in a box, I might classify classify myself as a Christian existentialist. So I believe in God, but I also do think we need to take personal responsibility and live an active life. I think Kierkegaard was a Christian yeah. existentialist. Yeah, okay. so I'm in good company. <laughs> so what have you found helpful along the way what 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 have you found helpful in you as you're going on your journey i've found uh, the books of richard raw very helpful as i've began to deconstruct the old certainties from my younger christian life i found a lot of conversations very interesting with people as well um People like uh, Professor Michael West, who appeared on an earlier Uh podcast and um, is is quite into meditation, which is something Mm -hmm. I find myself practising nowadays as well, along with yoga. Mm -hmm. I find that the whole thing's a lot less certain nowadays, but I'm I'm comfortable with that Mm -hmm. uncertainty. Yeah, that's beautiful to get to that point of being comfortable with uncertainty. That's that's an nirvana, I think. Uh, Yes, I, I mean, I guess I... Very similar to you in the sense of uh, a lot of reading. I'm really enjoying podcasts, actually, and the questions that are posed on podcasts and hearing, I guess, different to a book on a podcast, you genuinely hear people's thought processes out loud and and some of those engagements and discussions. And perhaps the intimacy of a podcast is resulting in people being really more open than in perhaps a typical interview. And therapy, a lot of therapy, I've really enjoyed that journey. Yes, well. no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think therapy is underrated as a developmental pathway, perhaps, because in the UK, at least, there's a kind of stigma attached to it. Less it's so, remedial, less so in the it? USA, yes, where yeah. everyone seems to have a therapist. But as, uh, as coaches, how do we encourage leaders to think about mm. what their leadership is for, to use Tracy Allen's question? It's a difficult question to ans- ask as well as answer, I think. Mm. A coachy question that might stimulate the imagination of a leader would be, if you were looking back on your career from 20 years hence, what would you like to be able to say about yourself that, that might yeah. start people along that path of what, might, what is my leadership for? 
Yeah, so you look, you you sort of project forward to to work forward towards that, and in parallel with that, I enjoy the the question. Look, looking back, you know, which are those moments in your life in which you've most thrived? I, I say particularly, I, I sort of tend to pick out from the age of sixteen. You know that that point of moving into adulthood. What are those moments when you've most fri- thrived? Who who are you with? What was going on? And reflecting on some of that that's a great question for all of us and nowadays I I keep a journal and whenever I've experienced that moment of kind of flow or flourishing or joy I make a note it's worth uh, reminding yourself when that happens okay that's the leader as philosopher how about we moving on to the leader as learner because beyond philosophy there's a whole lot more for a leader to master Personally, I would make the distinction between informational learning, lectures, training, what passes for learning in most universities and business schools even, and transformational learning, learning that enhances our ability to handle complex thoughts and ideas and to consider our thoughts themselves objectively. I mean, informational learning is what's passed for learning for most of my professional life, engineering, finance, economics, project management, etc., But belatedly, I've come to realise that that it was a whole different set of learning experiences that that were most valuable to me. And I described this as transformational learning. I split it into three broad headings, you know, the helping relationships, which includes coaching and mentoring, therapy, life experiences, stretch projects, uh, parenthood for me, a spiritual path, bereavement, introspection, you know, journaling essays and retreats, but all of that seems to me to be more valuable in a sense to our development than all the lectures and training and reading we might do for formal education. While I was studying engineering at university, I had holiday jobs as a labourer on the buildings, for example, and also in the steelworks, and the people skills I learnt on those jobs were every bit as valuable as the technical material I picked up at university, possibly more. And generally it's been when I've taken myself out of my comfort zone and I've had to sink or swim that I've learnt the most. What about you? Yeah, thank, thanks for sharing this model. I think it's, um, I, I, I really like the, the model. I think it's this thing, isn't it, about how we go from knowing something to doing something about it. <laughs> you know, we know that uh, we should eat healthily and do exercise. It's not like we don't know that the gap between the knowing and the doing and so those different aspects that you've pulled out is really knowing is one thing awareness is one thing but then transforming that into activity and action yes it's finding out about how you make that transformation i guess is is what uh, transformational learning is about yeah and and for each of us also that is different <laughs> you know what 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 would work Completely. for me wouldn't be what would work for you and and so that's why you we have to experiment we have to do it to then to then to then work that out yes and i i think that's a great thought i, I mean i think experimentation is really valuable and too often we sit there work, waiting for the perfect solution uh, for that stretch project to come along when we ought to embark Get out there and do some experimentation. Love that. Yeah, I'd really plug uh, for anyone interested in this idea, for anyone who's got those projects in mind or those dreams and ideas in mind and is struggling to perhaps take that first step uh, 
have the courage uh, which we need, I'd really plug uh, Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N, and he writes so well about this and he talks about publishing. What have you published today? He doesn't mean it in the traditional sense. He means, what have you put out there? What have you tried? And and I think, as I said to you, Chris, I think talking with friends and being a big part for me of learning as well of that transformational piece and, and the lack of formality of those friendships doesn't actually hinder the learning. It, it, I think it actually supports it. Yeah, I, I'm in a book group that started out in the conventional way, that is reading books and commenting mm. on them. But we've thrown a few documentaries in among the books and gradually as people have become more trusting, open and accepting, they've been prepared to express their feelings and... Um, I guess the 60s therapist Carl Rogers would recognise us maybe now as, as one of his encounter groups. And that really helps develop the way you, you think. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I think um, the political landscape over the last few years has meant that, that perhaps we're having more of those conversations about politics and activism amongst ourselves now in a way that perhaps didn't feature 10 years ago in in friendship conversations. Yeah, maybe to bring the conversation full circle to where we started out with a leader as philosopher, (laughs) those conversations have been pushed down Mm. from parliament and conventional debating arenas and they've actually been displaced into everyday life for a lot of people almost having the debates... Mm. That the politicians should be having but aren't. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that idea. And certainly locally where I live, there are a growing number of activist groups and a sense that maybe it's that you can influence things at a local level. Yep. You know, and there is the ability to to control that. Absolutely. So, so, so yes, I think we both encourage people to uh, to get involved locally. This, this ties in, by the way, for my listeners with the podcast that I did with Rob Copeland earlier in the se- series, Professor Rob Copeland of the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre, and, and he talks a lot about the power of people. Right, how about the leader as listener then? So we're, we're creating a transition here into the leader as listener, as listening is crucial to all helping relationships. I love the quote from Nancy Klein, the quality of your attention determines the quality of other people's thinking. And, you know, for me, listening's the start of the compassion journey. Unless we attend and listen, we can't understand or empathise. And unless we understand or empathise, we can't help in any meaningful way. I mean, I've been trying to identify common denominators in the way that compassionate leaders uh, work based on my first 17 podcasts, so... And here's what I found. They seek and value honest feedback. They look for a partner or team with complementary skills. They don't try to do it all themselves. They ask their peers in other organisations for business advice. They're not afraid to admit they don't know something. And they know in the words of Tracy Allen what the leadership's for. And two out of four of those behaviours require advanced listening skills. Yeah. Now, talking of Nancy Klein, you've just been on one of her coaching courses. So what did you make of that? Yeah, so it's a really, uh, for people who haven't come across it, uh, the time to think uh, approach is about intentionally making space to listen. And she talks about this phrase, it's giving generative attention. 
So there's listening to speak, uh, there's listening to make a point, and then there's this generative attention idea, which is if we genuinely put ourselves in a space where we are listening wholeheartedly to what another person has to say, we will help them generate more helpful, effective thinking. And then together we will be able to solve problems uh, more, more quickly uh, and in a, in a deeper, better way. And I'm, I'm really appreciative as, as an approach, again, coming back to this very volatile, complex, ambiguous world that we, that we live in today. And that the pressure of all the information and time, everything coming at us... And so one of the one of the tactics, for example, in in the time to think approach is to use rounds in meetings. Mm. Uh, and so if there's a, a question or, or a problem to be solved, uh, you put out what the question is and you ask for a volunteer in the room and you say, give us you know, if somebody wants to answer this question first and uh, we'll go round the room and we'll go to that person's left. And the the approach the go ahead, go ahead, sorry Chris. in, in yeah. each round you give that person the uninterrupted floor exactly don't you? yeah exactly so uh, ironically that's what I was going to say I was going to say the important <laughs> thing is that you that's do- my own bad listening <laughs> no, yeah, perfect is, perfect illustration is that uh, not only do you not um, interrupt you actually don't say anything so there is no comment there's no it is just so that's a that's a you know, depending on your team or culture environment, that's more or less odd. <laughs> but but it's giving you a couple of things. One, everybody's voice is being heard. And there's an expression that, that's used in, in the programme, which is you haven't arrived until you've spoken. So this idea that to engage, you, you, you need to express. But also what you find is that you actually start to generate better ideas and thinking by doing it that way because people aren't interrupting one another or getting frustrated they know they're going to have their time and their moment to contribute and by knowing that they're not going to have the opportunity to interrupt they don't actually start thinking about what their interruption is going to be like they actually are listening to what that person's got to say which it's hardly rocket science but it's quite rare I think in this culture yeah yeah so so I I find it really interesting and um, using it in um, when I'm facilitating away days and, and strategy days and things like that I think I think it works particularly well when when there are just those big things out there that we're not making making time for or or, or being able to to get to Let's just build on this for a minute, because I think Nancy Klein's worth thinking about for a bit longer. I mean, another approach that she uses that I use quite often in away days is thinking pairs. So if you're thinking about a particular issue, you can rehearse it like one-on-one before you introduce it to a whole group. And in those thinking pairs, one person has, say, five minutes uninterrupted to talk about it, and then the other person does. And then the group gets together again. The other thing I've found personally about about listening is if you listen really intently to someone, you do actually, you can connect with someone on a deep level. And I think modern neuroscience has shown that actually that other person's brain becomes an extension of your brain, which is an incredible idea. But you create that 
unity between two people and it's a really special thing it's one of the reasons actually why I became a coach it was quite a revelation to me when I started listening at that at that deep level and podcasts are a way to listen yes which is which is really interesting to note the rise of the popularity of podcasts yep in in that context um yeah okay so that's the leader as listener uh, while I have you here, Sarah, 2020 brings the start of a new decade. I feel like one of those political interviews now now saying, while I have you here, Minister, can I just ask <laughs> you about these rumours? So you put me on the back foot, I <laughs> 2020 brings the start of a new decade. What reflections do you have on your learning from the past decade and, and your plans for this one? So it's, it's, it's really interesting. So I turn 50 this year Uh, and so obviously I turned 40 uh, 10 years ago and that was also the point at which the a month after I turned 40 Jonathan and the boys and I made our move to Colorado and lived a very different life where I was running a a not-for-profit autism school and so on and then Jonathan died suddenly when we'd only been out there about 18 months so obviously you know, one of my reflections that I did know, but obviously have particularly had brought home to me, is that you can make plans and things things happen. So, you know, we'd, we'd moved out there, we'd sold everything in the UK. Uh, you know, the plan was we were going to live in Colorado for, for the rest of our lives. And uh, and then I moved back to the UK just, just, just over two years later. So the, the last decade, I, I would be lying if I didn't say it had been a really challenge it, it's been the most challenging decade of my life for for sure but coming to the end of the decade the the richness of what I've learned particularly around having the love of other people relationships so I lost the most important relationship in mm. in my life I'd, I'd known Jonathan since I was 11 he'd always been a huge part of my life and I've been so blessed with love and support and relationships from such a broad range of people as a result of what happened to us. So I've, I've certainly reached the end of the decade with ever more awareness of, of how relationships and love and support are, are the thing that the cradle in which we all live in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so... So yes, and 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 grief, as anybody who's walked that path knows, it, it's a time thing. It just gets different. But certainly coming to the end of the decade and, and looking towards this next one, it's really, I'm so grateful that I'm able to look forward with some joy in my life because there's certainly been moments earlier on in this decade when I didn't think I would ever have that joy again. Um, so I'm really grateful for that and um, I've planned all sorts of things to do this year uh, for for my 50th year including um, in the middle of this year I'm going on um, a mindful self-compassion program which I'm I'm really really interested in it's um, it brings together as it sounds mindfulness and the the benefits of that with self-compassion self-kindness uh, and a bit of stoicism, I'd say, thrown in. So I'm really looking forward to do that and then being able to bring that more broadly into into the leadership context because for all the reasons you and I have discussed, it seems that it's 
it's these sorts of techniques and supports that, as we said, it's relationships, it's love, it's support. They're the things that, that keep us going. And I think in business and in activism and in all different parts, we're recognising the value of it. And there's, there's one or two clues there, I, I think, in relation to our current debate about climate change and standards of living and and having more stuff. I think it was I think it was the Greek philosopher Epicurus who said you only need three things in life. You need relationships, meaningful work and a simple life. You know, and people seem to be reluctant to engage the the whole idea that if we're going to avert climate change, we are going to have to live more simple lives. But actually, there's nothing to be frightened of in that. It can lead to a far richer life and an, a renewed focus on what's really important. You know, life's enduring values, relationships in particular. You know, that is, for me too, that's what life is about. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the other elements here is technology well, technology and capitalism, right? So th- those are two also really big factors in why this isn't as straightforward as perhaps it should be. And one is obviously that the, the big giants have been engaging with psychologists and have learned so much about how to hook our brains, how to attract us towards the short-term gains that give us some sort of kick in the short-term but not necessarily medium, long term. And then capitalism, of course, th- thrives. It needs it needs this certain type of... So it's it, these are fundamental structural things. As, you know, the climate change thing obviously meshes completely into that space. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So I mean, what about you then? What about <laughs> you? What are your... What are your reflections on the last decade and then as you as you look forward? Well, towards the end of the decade, I drew a line under my life as a company director by writing Compassionate Leadership. I learned a lot in researching that book, but I couldn't have guessed that the companion podcast, this podcast, would also become such a learning experience for me. It's been such a privilege to talk to a group of leaders who are inspiring in every sense of the word. They know what they're about. They understand the importance of culture. They put their people first. And in and in parallel, as I've moved through my 50s, you have that decade yet to <laughs> come, my emphasis has changed from doing to being. I've become more aware of my thoughts and feelings. You might say I've become more mindful. I've become a better listener. It's a journey that I'm enjoying, and I'm catalyzing through meditation, yoga, walking, and generally slowing down. In a sense, I'm returning to my earlier years as a kid on a council estate when life was simpler and relationships were central. Richard Raw calls it falling upwards, and I think I'm planning to do more of that. In a recent blog, you talked about 2020 being a year of doing less. Is there something you will want to do less of this year, yeah. even though you're far younger than I am? <laughs> um. Yeah, I think I'm really enjoying this concept of of doing less, actually, and and playing with it and talking with with people about it. I mean, obviously, what it really means is is making space to do more of the things that I intentionally want to do. It really is about being intentional. So I think for me, from, from a work perspective, it's about continuing to have that clarity about the clients that I can 
work with to give the most value that I most enjoy working with and and not cluttering up and I think the biggest thing for me being an only parent over this past decade and and feeling always on just the continual pressures of running a business being a parent and then contributing in, in other ways it's a bit like you really getting more comfortable with space and silence and not having a to-do list sometimes and, and that being okay so after after being uh is it brainwashed is possible may or may not be the right word by franklin covey back in my early 20s and planning and, and all of that that's still a core part of my life but i also plan time with nothing and that i've never done that before every slot has always been used and i felt it had to be used Whereas now I see more that, you know, plan to have an hour just to read or just or I don't know, just just space. So, yes, I'm I'm following in your in your wiser, older footsteps. Thank you. Chris, thanks so much for inviting me in today to talk. I've really enjoyed. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can purchase Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. Email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com. This show was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.